everyone. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati! <laughs> Satan's girl herself. <laughs> How was that giggle? It was good. I've been practicing it. I can tell. Just it's... alone in the mirror. <laughs> Guys, I'm so excited for this episode. This, Welcome. This has been the episode we have been waiting to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And today we are talking about Ken Russell's seminal film, The Devils, from 1971. And Andrea, why haven't we done this film earlier? Because this film is so controversial that it has yet to have a proper physical release. As you know, listeners, it's it's kind of the same mandate as I have with the magazine. We don't want to talk about films that you guys can't find. In fact, after our best of episode, I've seen so many people talking about like, where can I find this film? Where can I find this film? That's exactly why we don't like to talk about stuff that isn't out yet. And as I understand it, this film did have a heavily edited physical release, but remains really hard to find. And yet... Alex made my day a couple of months ago. Weeks to months? Yeah. Andrea, I like to think I make your day every day. You do. But in January, Mm. when you told me that The Devils was going to be on the Criterion channel, I was like, here we go. This is it. The devil is having his day. And let's be clear. We both really love this film and we're both really excited to dive into it. But Andrea has like a thing. I fucking love this movie, guys. It scratches so many of my itches, some of them professional, sociological, cognitive, and some of them purely carnal. Yeah. It's it's a little bit, she's a lapsed Catholic, a little bit, she's a hot-blooded woman, and Uh who could resist Grandier? Who could resist Grandier? Who could resist such a complicated man who is so rotten- and yet so great. And how can you be both at the same time? I think Grandier is a really fascinating historical figure. Mm -hmm. He's a real historical figure, as we're going to get into it. And I just feel like the way Ken Russell treats this subject in this film, he brings absurdity because the story is absurd. He brings eroticism because the story is erotic. He brings horror. He brings everything that I want in this story occurs in this film. I'm a fan of Ken Russell. When he does horror, I think he does it amazingly well. I think um, you might be familiar with Layer of the White Worm, which was the first Ken Russell film I'd ever seen. Uh, I, I'm also very fond of Tommy. Um, so yeah, this this is just a marriage of many, many of my loves. Yeah, I was less familiar with Ken Russell outside of The Devils because uh, when Andrea and I were kind of properly getting into the horror scene here in Toronto, The Devils was having a bit of a revival. Uh, local film critic Richard Krauss has a book that's uh, that came out around then. It's still available. We'll link it in the show notes called Raising Hell, Ken Russell and the Unmaking of the Devils, which is all about like the production, the history, everything else that you could want to know about the devils. Um, there's also a really great documentary that's on the Criterion channel as part of this Ken Russell collection where you'll find the devils. And this documentary is called Hell on Earth, The Desecration and Resurrection of the Devils. And it's hosted by another esteemed film critic, Mark Kermode. And that, again, if you want to have like the production history, the controversies, all of that, we'll touch on those throughout this episode, but we're analysis girls. And let me say, like, this is the best film I've ever seen about how hard it is to be hot. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. That's a, that's a log line. That's a, I should put that on the DVD if and when it finally comes I out. I love how you say it's going to be a DVD. A DVD. <laughs> Blu-ray. A disc of some sort. I don't know. They're a CD-ROM. Shut up. <laughs> Now, shortly after Richard Krauss's book came out, we had him as a guest at the Black Museum. And it was in preparation for that lecture that I became aware of the devils and I saw it for the first time. And maybe I saw a not so legal bootleg yeah. of the full unbanned, the whole enchilada. Yes. And so there are a couple versions of the devils floating around out there. If you've watched the version on Criterion, great. You've got like 98% of the film. Mm -hmm. What is missing? And I found um, a a slightly illegal copy of it uh, that Andrea and I have watched. Um, And that includes, it's it's really about two minutes of additional footage. And that includes part of the exorcism, uh, which we'll talk about more, but it includes the notorious rape of the Christ. Mm-hmm. And then um, Sister Jean has a little bit more fun with Grandier's femur bone mm-hmm. than is in the Criterion collection. So those are the spicy bits that were excised to get this film a fucking X rating. But I feel I feel like we should say right on the outset that this was a studio film. This was a Warner Brothers film. Uh, it's in Warner Brothers catalog. And so, you know, for it to be so buried is to me, really fascinating. And I think there is a lot of, in in some ways, a lot of shared DNA with another Warner Brothers film, which is Clockwork Orange. Came out around the same time. A lot of graphic violence, a lot of like fucked up sexuality, but in a very, very different tone. So there's been a lot of conjecture about the differences between those two films and how one is held up as this esteemed classic, which has multiple releases, has, you know, the power of Kubrick behind it. And then you've got this kind of weird secretive cult film that is beloved by many of those who have seen it, but is kind of like, where can I find it? How can I access it? Mm -hmm. And I will say it's really cool that Criterion will put together these collections because I was less familiar with Russell's work outside of The Devils. And so I've watched a few of the um, other films that are part of it, including Lair of the White Worm. I have to say my favorite of the ones I watched was probably Gothic, which is this very dreamlike film about the weekend where Mary Shelley Uh, comes up with the story of Frankenstein. Mm. And for anyone who knows me well, you know I am a sucker for that story. I love a good fucked up writer's retreat. Gabriel Byrne plays Lord Byron. I like him. Julian Sands plays uh, Shelley. I like him too. Uh, Natasha Richardson. Oh shit. Connection to the Redgraves. Mm -hmm. Um, She plays Mary Shelley. So it's, it's, they're a little more goofy and Mm -hmm. a little more trashy than the sublime incredible singular vision of the devils but mm-hmm. i think they they are still as as with any filmmaker they are still in dialogue with each other but i think the devils is so special because it is this group of like filmmakers who were just like fucking ragtag and they were like the angry young men again we talked about that literary construct in our clockwork orange episode and they were all just like coming together and being like really fucking punk rock mm-hmm. And like, let's tear the establishment to shreds and let's do it through a historical lens. Mm -hmm. And I I really like that filmmaking conceit where you can talk about issues that are going on in that day and age. But with the distance of history, Mm -hmm. it adds so many fantastic, savory layers to it. 
And yet it seems like this film is not too removed historically for everyone to get their knickers in a bunch about it. And I also want to add before we really get into it that if you're not able to get the uncut version, it's fine. This isn't like an Alien 3 situation where it makes or breaks the film. We're just looking at a little bit of extra spicy violence. Your imagination can probably fill in the blanks. Just a priest jerking off. No big deal. Yeah, you're fine. So, shall we get into it then? Let's fucking do it. The Devils. The Devils Burn. An explosive film. Absolutely brilliant. ABC TV. Superbly, frighteningly effective. Time Magazine. But of course I can prove nothing. This Mother Superior may be little more than a hysterical nun. Exactly. Mere conjecture. And what form does this incubus take? The Devils is not a film for everyone. Vanessa Redgrave, Oliver Reed, in Ken Russell's film of The Devils. The story takes place in 17th century France when King Louis XIII is kind of ruling, but also largely fucking around, leaving the Cardinal Richelieu to carry out his agenda of consolidating power in France by weakening the feudal nobility. Meanwhile, the city of Loudon is mourning the death of its governor, leaving the priest Urbain Grandier in charge. Grandier is a passionate speaker and popular leader, but also a known philanderer who questions the religious doctrine against celibacy in the priesthood. He makes a lot of powerful enemies. He knocks up an aristocrat's daughter and abandons her. He criticizes the town's doctors for their barbaric methods, and he declines an offer to serve as confessor to the local nunnery, unaware that the abbess, Sister Jeanne, is obsessed with him. When Grandier secretly marries a local townswoman, Sister Jeanne becomes so jealous that she confides in Father Mignon, who tells the baron, who then hatches a plan to take Grandier out of the picture by accusing him of bewitching the convent. The baron summons an inquisitor, Father Bari, whose methods of interrogation launch the nuns into a hysterical frenzy. King Louis actually shows up to the Inquisition in disguise and reveals it all to be a sham, but Grandier is still tried and sentenced to death. He maintains his innocence in spite of terrible torture and even blesses and forgives his accusers. Following his death, Father Mignon goes mad with guilt, Sister Jeanne goes mad with horniness, Bari continues to try witches across France, and Loudon's walls are demolished. The end. Shit. That is true. Like yeah. the synopsis that I just gave is a historical account of something that happened in 17th century France. Yeah. And really, uh, based on everything I've read, everything I've absorbed about this film, is that Ken Russell really didn't make that many changes to the historical facts as they are laid out. What he mainly did was he shortened the timeline of events. So mm-hmm. instead of years, it happens within months. Which makes sense. It makes sense. And you don't really feel it. I think it's fine. Time is a flat circle, etc. Now, it is based on The Devils of Loudon by Aldous Huxley, which was published in 1952. And I found an audiobook. Nice. And I started listening to it. And the narrator is good until he has to speak French. Ooh. And then I want to throw my phone across the room. But this whole story is sociology porn. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Because I actually um, went back and reread my copy of The Devils of Loudon by Aldous Huxley, which was published in 1952. And 
I I think it's such an interesting book, and Huxley has called it, and you know, its fans have called it a nonfiction novel. Mm-hmm. So he takes all these documents and weaves them together into a really readable narrative. Now, what's interesting to me about the Devils of Loudon is that there are long fucking passages and chapters that are just about bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Who knows who? Who is this? family line that they're following, who talks to this person, who sends this letter, what is happening. And then you get into the salacious details of Grandier and the nuns and what happens to them and how they act and what are their own kind of inner workings that Huxley extrapolates on. And I think this is really, for me as a reader, I don't have that sociology background, but it was really intentional because you have these sections that are very well written, but really dry. Mm -hmm. And then you get into like, and they do what to that nun? Mm-hmm. And it feels like, oh, yes, I am feeling the same way a person in the public court, in the public sphere would have felt. Like, life is dull. It is boring. I don't understand how power is dealt out. But, oh, look, there is a priest on fire. Yeah. Let's fucking go. Yeah, it's us watching VPR. Oh, God, yes. Um, and the film was also partially based on a play called The Devils by John Whiting, and that was written and first produced in England in 1961, and it also very closely follows the historical events, but it leaves out a lot of the lurid details and sexuality, mm-hmm. which such a big miss. Yeah. And Huxley, like, goes into details. Yes. Real fucking details. So I I think Ken Russell really strongly pulls from Huxley and maybe pulls a little bit from the play, but it is very much its own beast. It just, it points to the fact that this film can be enjoyed on several levels. You can just take your popcorn out and enjoy the salaciousness of it all. But it's also, the more you understand about the context, the more complicated and frankly terrifying the story is. I think Grandier as a historical figure is so unique and really compelling. And I think in the hands of a lesser author or a lesser filmmaker, it would have been really easy to water him down into being either a monster or a persecuted, great, wonderful, pious priest. And yet he occupies a space right smack in between. So complicated. It's really compelling. And like brought to life by Oliver Reed. Yes. So Oliver Reed is a great actor. I think he is fantastic in this film. I think we should maybe just touch briefly on Andrea's feelings about Oliver Reed as as Grandier because I can actually feel it radiating off of you right now. It's complicated, guys. Just like the figure of Grandier, Oliver Reed wasn't a great man. I saw all this footage of him being a fucking drunken asshole in interviews. He like the stories about his drunken escapades abound. I think there's even one in Toronto. Do you know it? Yeah, he was coming in, I think it was to film The Brood, the Mm -hmm. David Cronenberg film, and he like was wandering in the streets of Toronto and like the nicer area of Toronto near his hotel in his underwear. And there was like an urban legend that he was arrested, but in Richard Krause's book, um, it's he talks to Cronenberg and that's where uh, David Cronenberg says, actually, that didn't happen. The police did find him, but they just escorted him back to the hotel. Mm -hmm. And David Cronenberg does speak very highly of his time with Oliver Reed, that he was very professional. He had a totally wonderful experience with him. So gifted actor, 
not necessarily a great man. And we always talk about separating the art from the artist. We're always kind of grappling with uh, these standards to which we hold celebrities Mm. and especially politicians. Like, do you have to be a good man to be a great leader? I think it was just last year that our prime minister announced his divorce (gasps) and it was scandalous. Like, you have to be in a heterosexual marriage with 2.5 kids. I mean, if Melania can stick it out. (laughs) Why couldn't Sophie? This is a subject that is still relevant today. And how bad does a person have to be before we disregard everything that's good about them and burn them at the stake? And I think Grande is so fascinating because for all of his multitudes, there is a really interesting through line for him within the narrative of the devils, which is he is, to use modern parlance, a bit of a Mm fuckboy. He's going around doing his thing, but very quickly... Russell and the events and the historical events introduce us to someone who is very invested in his community. Yes. That scene where he like rushes in to uh, Madeline's home, uh, the woman he eventually marries, to save her mother from these like charlatan doctors and then like gives this mother comfort and like gives her the last rites. And then, and that's in the private space. Mm -hmm. And then he goes outside and fights those doctors with an alligator. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking cool. The way he speaks to the crowd, like I had goosebumps. And when you think of the desperation and the hardship that these people were were living in, and of course, like there was also the reform going on. And so he was a scholar as well. And, and, you know, he did try to kind of justify his philandering in that he challenged the celibacy of priests on the basis of, you know, we're all sinners, we're born into sin, and yeah, we do our best and we fuck up and we ask forgiveness. Why should priests be held to a different standard? Which, as scandalous as that was, it was also kind of the time for priests to be so bold because it was the Reformation. And, you know, he was still a great leader and he still did great things. But holy shit, did he make some powerful enemies? Oh, God. And I thought it was really interesting. Like, I remembered um, the great British actress Gemma Jones plays Madeline and she's gone on to do so many things. I feel like in North America, she's best known for playing Bridget Jones's mom. Oh. Um, But she's had this like incredible career and I believe this was her first film role. Mm. And I always kind of knew like, oh yeah, she's in it. But watching it this time, I was like, oh, I think Grandier just met someone who finally shares similar values to him. Like, she's someone who's invested in her community. She's fucking cute. She's into Grandier. He's into her. And he's, like, starting to make these changes. And he really wants to start dedicating himself in this moment of crises to other people. It's not exactly a love story for the ages. I I didn't feel a whole lot between them. She was mostly just a device to... Um, get him in antagonism with the doctors, as you said, and to really rile up the nuns, because that marriage drove Sister Jeanne into a frenzy. Fornicator! Fornicator! Sacrilegious bitch! Seducer priest! That's your calling! Your priest is in a brother! You filthy Get back to the gutter where you So before we get into the nitty gritty and the plot points and themes that make up this film, I want to talk just about the aesthetics for a second. Let's talk about these sets, these settings, these rooms, these spaces these characters occupy because it is all fucking bulletproof. And no matter how many times I see this film, I appreciate it visually more and more. 
uh, starting with the nunnery. These really sterile, institutional, white, tiled spaces that are so canted and cramped. And Sister Jeanne, I don't know if we've mentioned yet, has a disability. She has a hump on her back. And the cramped and canted ceilings make her seem like a like a human bonsai. Yeah. Like just like growing up in this space has warped her not only physically, but psychologically. And I just, I love that. I love that her fantasies of Grandier were so biblical, imagining herself as Mary Magdalene. Like, you know, there's an aspect of vanity and that her hump is gone, but there's also like, if you consider that these nuns are so steeped in this lore constantly, of course, that's going to be the tantalizing fiction that you imagine. I think one of the most telling scenes of the film is, especially from the nun's perspective, is early on when Grande is doing the walk through the town. Mm-hmm. And like one of the younger nuns is like pressed up against the bars of like this basement mm-hmm. just to look at him. And so you just hear like off screen. Grande, I could have me anywhere. Even on the early order itself. Look, <laughs> there he is. And you feel this kind of like desperation, mm-hmm. like this this clawing at trying to get out in this heavily like sanitized, tiled, uh, sanitarium like nunnery that mm-hmm. they're in. Yeah. And then there's Grande's home. The whole thing, it's it's like a tower with these spiral staircases. He's got these beautiful statues, shelves and shelves full of books because he was a scholar. He was a learned man. He was very interested in uh, theology and theocracy and all of that. And when his downfall happens, it happens in that home and that place is destroyed. It is smashed before his body is smashed, but never his spirit. You know, like the, it, thematically, it's perfect. Yeah, and even the, um, like when the governor passes away and it's got this like incredible like skull uh, thing that is holding his body and the town square and like the theater that's happening around it. Like the film opens with a piece of theater. Yes. And I think it's really important to just call out the fact that this was the incredible British filmmaker, Derek Jarman, one of his first major gifts that, you know, he kind of by happenstance met someone who kind of knew Ken Russell and Derek Jarman was this like punk rock art kid before punk was a thing. And uh, he was super queer and he was out and he was doing all this stuff. And he was like, I want to make something weird and beautiful and messed up. And Ken Russell was like, yes, okay. Derek Jarman has given a lot of, you know, interviews and talked about his maybe less great experiences with Russell. But I think that talent is so strong. And in my mind, it has never been replicated. It's again, it's very sad because Jarman passed away in the 90s from AIDS. He made some incredible films, some of, in my mind, the most important British films. But um, again, it was someone we lost to a disease that was not treated seriously by governments all over the world. And, uh, you know, that's how we lose our artists. So fuck that shit. But I think Jarman's entire aesthetic within the devils heightens the theatricality mm-hmm. of this story, of this film. And theater plays such an interesting role throughout the film. It opens with a piece of theater. And also, you've got a fucking play happening as Grandier birds. Like, imagine you are sentenced to death and there you're waiting to die in incredible pain. And someone is like, hey, I've got kind of like a shitty play about your life. Yeah. I'd like to enact pantomiming him banging young aristocrats while he's being strapped to a fucking pole. 
It's brutal. And yeah, I, I was really interested in what you would have to say about the use of theater in this film. Like, first of all, Ken Russell, I love it when he does nightmare sequences. I love it when he does dream sequences. And certainly in anything involving King Louis in <sighs> France uh, has this really garish, elaborate inappropriate like you know if, if you're squeamish like that's as blasphemous as anything else that goes on in this film it's it's just so much more acceptable but just the fact that theater was traditionally used for political satire and here we have the elite almost using it against the people in the fucking trenches doing the politics doing the work yeah no i mean theater was so much and you know like any mass media and we'll talk about mass media it's so much about control and also for the pleasure of the upper classes like during this period in france this was when they were moving on from religious wars to this period when france was becoming this really centralized power within europe they were politically powerful they were culturally influential and you know art comes along with that art is like a soft power tool to spread that around and i think the opening scene of the devils is so fucking telling because it opens opens with this play and it's the birth of venus which is to my knowledge and i was not raised in religion so andrea correct me if i'm wrong was not a part of christianity venus yeah no that's like a yeah. Greek pantheon goddess yeah. thing were you being funny i was trying but you know it, it's hit and miss sometimes um <laughs> but um, but you've got this like very over the top you see the people with the most power whiling away their time and as someone who also studied dance for far too long frankly uh we also had a history component when we learned dance and so much of ballet and everything we knew about ballet was developed in these courts and it was a way for the aristocrats and the royalty to show off their shoes mm. and their calf muscles okay which is a why lot of that I, this is why i have sick calf muscles you do thank you um but it's playing with this idea of what is theater proper? Mm -hmm. What is like a sanctified space where we're doing a pantomime, where the king is doing a show? And then what is for the masses? Mm -hmm. And what is for the masses in this period is a public execution. Yeah. Well, even how Sister Jeanne learns of Grandier's wedding is because she sees the mm. nuns playing it out. And it's so fascinating that that is what they have. That is their play. That is their way of retelling. Like when they're not in prayers, I guess, mm -hmm. they're playing. And it's like we all do it. Like when we're kids and you play house or you play whatever, you are constantly enacting this out. And I think you can extrapolate that notion of play into the mass exorcism mm -hmm. that happens mm -hmm. because it is so over the top. And it's like if the Louis play at the beginning and then the pantomime at the burning are these kind of clinically accepted forms of theater then the exorcism is the like 1970s avant-garde theater that mm -hmm. fucked everyone up and like caused scandals all over the world. Mm -hmm. Now let's set the stage a little bit by discussing these characters. Sure. IRL, the real people. I, I think the film did a brilliant job of conveying essentially what they were about, but let, let's fill in some of that negative space. Let's talk about Louis. Oh, yes, please. Louis XIII, sometimes called Louis the Just, was a weak ruler, but exceptionally powerful in that he was one of the first examples of an absolute monarch. He had unlimited power. What he says goes, including death sentences without appeal. Now, he became king at the age of nine when his father was assassinated. 
His mother acted as regent and did such a shitty job that Louis exiled her and took the throne early. And so as such, he relied heavily on his chief ministers, including Cardinal Richelieu. So cool. And so I feel like early, you know, we see him do the birth of Venus and Richelieu's kind of yawning and he's kind of bored and Louis looks shook. He is desperate to impress this person. And so I feel like artistically and entertainingly, we learn that he's not a very strong leader. He's not very passionate. He's just he's just here for kicks. The yeah. real leader is the cardinal, and he's scared shitless of him. Yeah, he wants to put on plays. He wants to flirt with young boys around him, and uh, he wants to shoot Protestants. Yeah. That's what he wants to do. And I think it's so telling in the opening moments of the film um, because, again, the devils. Who are the devils? In Huxley's version, you know, you can extrapolate that into many different meanings. Uh, Same in Whitting's play. It goes back and forth. It can be many things. But with Russell as the writer-director behind this film, the way this film is set up, the credits start rolling during that exchange between Richelieu and Louis. And it kind of freezes over Richelieu's face, and it's like Ken Russell's film of... And then it cuts back to Louis and it's like the devils. Mm -hmm. And it's like from the jump, we know who the fucking villains are. Mm -hmm. Even though we don't see the Cardinal all that much throughout, his specter looms large over this town and over this story. I gotta say, I love when like Richelieu is being carted around like fucking Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) Standing upright and just (laughs) leaning back. That's nice. I want that. That's, you know what? When Andrea... When you get old, uh-huh. that's how I'm going to move you around when I conventions. Get yeah. That's how we're going to keep my fancy cardinal shoes so nice and clean. <laughs> I just have this image of me wheeling you around Salem. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you just waving. So let's talk more about Richelieu. His big career-defining agenda was to consolidate power in France, obviously. And so to do so, he had to weaken the power of the French feudal nobility. All of the princes and dukes and lesser aristocrats had their own fortified castles at the time, and they were raised. And so the aristocracy fucking hated his guts for it. But his beef with Grandier actually started long, long before. Grandier, who was a scholar, as I mentioned, was challenging clerical celibacy and stuff like that. But he wrote a scathing satire of the cardinal in particular before he was in power. He was a small fry nothing. And then he had this meteoric rise and all of a sudden Grandier was like, oh, fuck, I pissed off somebody very important. Anyway, the people fucking hated him too, so much so that they celebrated his death in 1642, but he remains a celebrated historical figure in France for his political reform. There's still statues now. Grandier. Grandier is historically regarded as a victim of a politically motivated coup, which I think is so interesting because obviously we've talked about witch hunts and witch finders and witches and persecute, like on the basis of gender and having its basis in little more than pure unadulterated misogyny. And then, you know, here's this guy who was burned for witchcraft because some men were too. It's still political, maybe not gender-based, but you know. Anyway, we're going to be linking a whole bunch of show notes. I have uh, a YouTube clip, which is a Ken Russell interview. It shows him on set in the studio with the film's composer who scored the film as it played. It's really interesting. But you see Ken talking about Grandier's intentions. And he's like, oh, he's a sinner that becomes a saint. And he's just a man. And I remember when he said that, like he made a fist. And I, I know you guys can't see what I'm doing, but 
just a man. It's very cute. He's just a man. <laughs> and, and like, there's some, there's some patriarchy inherent in that, you know, he's fallible. He's a man. He can't help but knock up aristocrats daughters and abandon them and treat them like complete shit. Like, let's not. <laughs> fuck boy's gonna fuck. Fuck boy's gonna fuck. But like, it's rough. Barrier cross with Christian fortitude. Like he shuts off like a light and it is devastating to watch. And, you know, I feel like Ken Russell's fist pumping almost implies that he believes that men aren't to be held responsible for sexual indiscretions if they're especially noble in other areas of life, which, you know, I take issue with, but I also appreciate there's a complexity that's rarely afforded to women between virgin and horror. And yet you've got Grandier who, you know, like they really resisted making him a perfect perfect Tommy Wiseau human who didn't deserve to die. You know? <laughs> That's great. Does it make sense? Okay. okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ, like the sun shines out his ass and people are awful to him. That's such a fantasy for men. Well, and I think that's also, you know, it speaks to our parasocial relationships that we have with celebrities or public figures. We want them to be this perfect thing. And then when they have complications, when they have darkness, when they have desires that fall outside of our own purview of what we desire, mm -hmm. it's like, ooh. And that's not to say, like, if Roman Polanski is a fucking rapist. Yes. So we're not talking about that. No. But, like within consensual adult relationships shit happens yeah shit happens and there's collateral and it fucking sucks mm -hmm. but i think again it's an interesting portrayal particularly of a male character that i don't see very often which is he's kind of a shit in his private life but he's doing so much work within the community. That's right. For, for, for the couple of lives he destroyed, he was saving that city. And I think the main thrust of the film, if you'll pardon the pun, is like we see, we see the city in ruins moments after his death. And I got to say, like Madeline just kind of like wandering out and just the credits rolling. Yeah. It truly fucking broke my heart. Yeah. Like, I don't know where she's going. I'm worried about her. It's I'm worried good. about all of us. So as I mentioned at the top of this episode, I've always really had a lot of love and affection for this film. Watching it in 2024, it just hit different. We are collectively going through a pandemic. It has happened. We have seen death at a new level. It feels much more palpable. It certainly does to me. Um, and it felt very different watching the implications of the plague within this film. So for context, the Black Plague was mainly present in France from 1347 to 1352. That's when it ran rampant throughout the country. Subsequently, because our film takes place in 1634, there are multiple outbreaks that happened since. And with each outbreak, less and less people died. So people just kind of kept getting on with their lives. Oh, geez, does this sound really fucking familiar? Now, within Loudon, uh, there was an outbreak in 1632, which saw the death of 3,700 people out of a population of Loudon of 14,000, which means 26% of the population of Loudon died. Wow. So the idea of this kind of death 
being palpable and like so close to us is forever present within this film. And in Richard Krauss's book, he has some, uh, a quote from Ken Russell, and I'll paraphrase it, um, but it is that it's that Ken Russell wanted to include a lot of elements of the plague within this film, hence the shortening of timelines um, within the within the film, so that. When Grandier's death happened, it was like, oh, people could cheer at this mm. because death felt very palpable. Bodies were being drug out to the city center, the city square, and being burned like it wasn't that big a deal, quote unquote, mm-hmm. at this time. And as we've talked about in past episodes, like when you look back in history, without access to, you know, indoor plumbing, medicine, penicillin, things like that. Death happened a lot more frequently. So as we get more medically advanced, death becomes something that is far more traumatic and tougher to deal with in many ways Mm -hmm. because it becomes more of a rarity than anything else until something like a pandemic happens. Now, I couldn't find research to corroborate this, but I'll speak a little bit anecdotally. Andrea, Mm. I don't know about you, but in coming out of the lockdowns of the pandemic, do you find people are more horny? Oh, I find they're more everything. Yeah, that's fair. And there is something I find in the air where I realize I am talking to more people and they're all like uh, open relationships, polyamory, polycules, throuples. Like I am having multiple conversations across my bandwidth of friends where it is like exploring new things, trying Mm. new things. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways that makes sense. And I'm even seeing a lot more news coverage of this New York magazine just ran a whole like polyamory is a thing. And it's not just this thing we kind of left in key parties of the 70s. It's something that people are actively trying out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Multitude, like relationships are funky and weird. But I think there was this element of like when we locked down of like either you're on your own or you're with a partner and then you come out of that and you're like, what if this is it? Mm. What if I don't get to experience all the things I want to experience? And I think that there is this element of that in the devils that this kind of repressed sexuality, which happens because of the plague, which happens because of the walls, the physical walls of Loudon, and because of the uh, fortress of the nunnery, the second these characters can touch it, Mm. they want to have it. And even when they can't touch it, it makes them want it more. Mm -hmm. Like that thing of like, you can see it, but you can't have it. it. It can be a very destructive force in your life. Yeah. No, that's... That's that's interesting. I hear the wisdom in everything you're saying. Like people are when confronted with death, and I feel like I've seen this on a macro scale with the pandemic, and and also just even people who are dealing with grief or who have near death experiences or have a brush with disease are just kind of like, oh shit, life is short and it's fragile and it's fickle, and I'm going to squeeze it for everything it can. If you had have asked me. To summarize The Devils a couple of weeks ago, a film that I've loved and that I've seen numerous times, I might have forgotten the backdrop of the plague. In rewatching it, I was, it's very present in the beginning. It's present and it's garish and it's horrific in the beginning. It's almost grand, like piles of corpses that are made up with like glaring eyes. You've got these mass graves uh, being blessed while they're being burned chemically. But we don't see a whole lot of plague later on, but it still remains a very important 
contextual factor in in the misery and the circumstances and indeed like you were saying the um the class echelon the haves and the have-nots the people living in squalor were a lot closer to death when the people around louis camp are having a lot of fun plus there's the doctors we got to talk about the doctors not only are their methods ineffectual and archaic they are reveling in the brutality of their methods. And so it's not just like, oh, the medical profession hadn't gotten there yet. It's the medical profession was corrupt and fucked up and out for blood. And, you know, Grandier rails against that, which again, makes further enemies. This is how he meets Madeline. It, it, it's a nice it's kind of hot. It's, it's, it's kind of sexy. But doctors are portrayed in this film as sadists. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think one of the things that I love about this film is it takes aim at so many institutions equally. All the pillars of this society crumbled at the same time. And that is how a disaster like this was led to happen. And I really respect that the film is able to, you know, we can think of so many horror movies that are like religion, bad, science, good. Police, good, or medicine, bad. Or religion, good, everything else, bad. Yeah, and again, it, like, it, it's that binary that is so fucking boring. I really love the complexity of this. Yeah, so in watching The Devils, it brought to mind one of my favorite thematic narratives, which is the public versus the private. And I made a quick list of things that happen in The Devils in private and things that happen in the devils in public. Okay. And I can't say this is a completest list. This is just what I made um, off the top of my head for purposes that shall reveal themselves. Okay. So within the devils, what happens in the private? Affairs, sex, masturbation, torture, deceit, political dealings, treachery, and marriage. What happens in <laughs> public? Just marriage tacked on after all these horrible things. Just the latest on that list. Um, And then what happens in public is fights, trials, political rallying, exorcisms, and death. And it led me, again, we've talked about elements of this in this podcast, my friends, but the idea of class, privilege, and space, they are all intricately linked to each other. The upper classes have easier access to private spaces and they're able to make decisions with other upper-class people within those spaces. On top of that, they're able to uh, create alliances and they don't have to involve the masses that exist outside of the upper class, whether it's royalty or anything else at that stratosphere. Now, the larger population is fed and demonstrated a narrative which is decided upon within those public spaces. So what is generally comes out on top in the private is fed to the public. But then I think it's also important to note, and the Devils makes this really clear, is that acts that are quote-unquote publicly derided, i.e. sex, drinking, like enjoying yourself, is frowned upon in the public, yet in the private it is fully experienced. Mm -hmm. And this is where we get into a notion of what is acceptable in the private and what is acceptable in the public. And I think this, if I may get philosophical for a second. So I was thinking about another thing we've talked about a lot in this podcast, which is the idea of a social contract. And Mm. that is something that my 
dearest friend Andrea introduced to me. And there's several iterations of the social contract. But uh, one of the earlier versions is from Thomas Hobbes, who was an English philosopher who was alive and working during the time of the possessions of Loudon. And his social contract theory came about during the English Civil War. Now, the English Civil War was divided between people who were monarchists supporting the king, etc., and the people who believed in a democratic government and wanted to see that through. Now, Hobbes was against the idea of divine right. And that was the right and the power that was believed to be imbued to the kings and queens who ascended to the throne. And this allowed them to have authority, frankly, too much authority. So Hobbes was kind of of the idea of like, well, there is no divine right. So we need to have elected officials, but humans function best under a certain authority, under this kind of moral certitude, because Hobbes believed that humans were essentially, frankly, very shitty, that we are a shitty species, that we are competitive and violent, and that we require structure. Do you disagree with Hobbes? Well, let's talk about this. So, skipping ahead about a century, um, let's talk about the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, who was working in the 18th century, and he believed that man was naturally virtuous and that it was the imposition of a civil and organized society that brought humanity's negative characteristics to the forefront. And I think the devils ultimately exemplifies Rousseau's belief. Grandier, while a fuckboy, is fundamentally a good man. We can see that in his acts of kindness with Madeline's mother, with the way he builds that relationship with Madeline and the way he actively works to protect the people of Loudon. And as he's, you know, he's coming back to the town to save it. And he's like, I believe in these people. I am, you know, you are fucking this up. You have turned the house of the Lord into a circus. And its servants into clowns. You have seduced the people in order to destroy them. You have perverted the innocent. The society, as many have written, works to suppress sexuality, pleasure from sex, eroticism, in favor of an emphasis on procreation, which, frankly, we've talked about in this podcast before, can work to just produce a labor force from the uh, lower classes. And I think it's also exemplified by the nuns. And I want to talk more about the nuns so much more, because Sister Jean and the nuns are a really great example of this Rousseauian theory as they have been repressed, they have been rejected by society at large, and they are in a situation which drives them to jealousy, lust, madness, and torture because they are in this societal building of control. They cannot escape it. They are forever within it. And the second they can kind of punch out of it, it all goes to hell. And I think the exorcisms are a way of acting out and they can kind of play it out and, and do all those things which feel natural to them. Yet in doing them and doing the exorcisms um, as like fucked up and freaky as they are, they're also, especially Sister Jean, getting horribly tortured. Mm-hmm horribly tortured. Huxley goes into it in great detail. I think um, Russell goes into a fair amount of detail. but Enough detail. Enough. Enough, but it's really fucking challenging. Mm-hmm. 
And it's really like, if you believe that humanity is fucked up and that we need structure in order to survive, I don't know if I believe that. I I think I believe more that, you know, people have the capacity to be good. Mm -hmm. And the more we impose on ourselves and each other, all these different things, the more we become these like lesser versions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because like, Hobbes is is one of the founding fathers of sociology with the social contract and that people have to give up certain freedoms in order to be able to live in harmony of other people. You might want to take your neighbor's pig, but you can't because that's theirs. And like you have to give up your freedom to do whatever the fuck you want to live in harmony. And I think the idea that humans are fundamentally flawed and have bad intentions is probably like just a throwback to the idea that we're born into sin and sin and sin and sin. And like, even when you were giving your list of things in the private and the public sphere, it's like public is that which we can acknowledge and private is that which is sin. And, you know, back in the day when you had to confess all that, like you weren't supposed to have a private, even in pure thoughts was a sin that you were supposed to confess, which doesn't make it public because you had a pact with the whatever, but You know what I mean? I'm going to want to talk about institutions and society. I know that for myself, I work well within a routine, within certain confines, within certain rules. But at the same time, those rules have to be fluid and they have to be unanimous, which is like an abstract impossibility. Oh God, I love a fucking routine. My life is a routine and that's what makes me happy, but it is my routine. Mm -hmm. It is not something dealt from on high. I mean, you know, yes, capitalistic nine to five structure. Um, but beyond that, like that's what, you know, in the anxious age we are in, that's what makes me feel safe. But I love the idea that you can connect with people and it can be in different ways for different means, for for different reasons, for different time periods. Mm -hmm. I, I think where I feel a bit more fucked up about it is the idea that like, you meet one person and then they are yours forever. And then you have the children and then you lie down and die. Mm-hmm. Like, and again, I'm, I'm super simplifying it. Long-term marriage, children, that's all fantastic. But that there's a, a social script that is really fucked up. Oh, it's a hegemonic agenda yeah. that benefits the capitalist class. Like exactly. there is, you know, at one point that benefited the church to work a certain way. And then if it if it benefited the monarchy to work a different way, and then the monarchy was in more power than the church, then it would change. And that's going to change and change and change. And I mean, if you look at like the social, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, but the amount of social change that happened when the contraceptive pill was introduced, Mm -hmm. when abortion became legalized, which sorry, our friends in the States, but fucking yikes down there. It sounds a bit all free to be you and me, but it is free to be you and me. It should be. You know, with some social safety nets and, you know, support for people in need and people of issues. So there's definitely something to be said for established orders and known hierarchies. And I'm going to talk a lot about that more. When we don't know what the rules are, that's when things get bad. I, I think, you know, I absolutely believe that rules can and need to be changed and renegotiated. But um, but there's something to be said for uh, for structure and order. and. I was really struck in this film, but they kept mentioning that these nuns were Ursuline nuns. And I was like, what 
is that? How much do I actually know about nuns and convents and nunneries? What is the difference between an abbess and a mother superior? And like, what is all of this? What didn't the sound of music tell us? Not nearly enough. Personally, my mother was, she went to school under nuns. And so she has stories about getting hit across the hands with a ruler when they were naughty. And in the mornings when they said their prayers, they had to kneel down. And if their skirt didn't touch the floor, they were sent home because it was improper. Ooh. Did Rita ever get sent home? Uh, she didn't confess to it. <gasps> I think she was a good girl. Um, but in the film, I really loved how Sister Jeanne took the time to explain that her convent was largely made up of unwed daughters of aristocrats whose parents couldn't afford a dowry. And, you know, I, I think that there's actually a widespread misconception of the societal role of the nunnery and like who becomes a nun. We've got Madeline who shows up at the door and is like, I just want to serve Christ. And that's when Sister Jean's like, yeah, bitch, whatever. <laughs> this, that's not what this is about. This isn't just a costume. This is a way of life. I'm quoting Return of the Living Dead, completely out of context. So look, brass tacks, a nun. A nun is a woman who vows to dedicate herself to religious service. And the severity of those vows can vary. And there are nuns in many denominations of Christianity, but also Buddhist nuns. Anywhere there are monk, there are counterparts that are nuns. Ursuline nuns, aka the Order of St. Ursula, who was a martyr, is an enclosed cloistered order that broke off from the Angelines. And the Angelines, I learned, is a secular institute of consecrated women within the Catholic Church and their purpose is to educate women and girls and take care of the sick and needy. And these are women who, like, they lived independently, they were married, they had families, they worked secular jobs to support themselves. And then they did this charity work on the side where they would pray together and they would do this work in the name of Christianity. Um, and they took, quote unquote, simple vows, as opposed to the Ursuline nuns who took complex vows of chastity and all of this. Now, in 1298, Pope Benefast VIII decreed that all nuns should be cloistered. Care to guess why? Because they're so hot. They were distracting the priests. <gasps> I was right. With their irresistible feminine wiles, and they should kept away from sight for their own good. The Vatican even dictated at this time that their windows couldn't overlook public roads. Oh, love it when men look out for us. But going back to what Sister Jeanne was talking about, it's true that convents were sometimes a dumping ground for unmarriageable women. But some feminist scholars argue that entering a convent was a realistic way of avoiding marriage, an escape for battered women and prostitutes who were shunned by society. And indeed, in the film, the sisters were quite well insulated from the plague, weren't they? And one feminist scholar along these lines is Helen Rose Ebaugh, and uh, I am going to link an article called Patriarchal Bargains and Latent Avenues of Social Mobility, Nuns in the Catholic Church. And she argues that, you know, the Roman Catholic Church is as patriarchal an institution as any other, but women navigate these systems strategically, even within the Catholic Church. And in the case of nuns, the author argues that joining a religious order grants some status to women who would otherwise be poor and powerless. It's sometimes even granting them education in a career. And insofar as they were seemingly taking a subservient position to the patriarchy of the church order, they were all like, yeah, yeah, you're the big boss man, but I'm getting a fucking university degree out of this. 
I'm teaching other women. I'm helping the needy. There's good to be had. And over the years, different popes would change the rules slightly about what a nun could or couldn't do, what she should wear. There have been progressive popes like Pope Pius XII, who said that the long flowing robes were no longer practical and kind of unhygienic. And so they should dress like the communities that they served. Like (laughs) you're making a, there have been progressive popes, believe it or not. Anyway, uh, I read that the number of nuns in the Western world is steadily declining, which isn't surprising given that women now have a bit more access to things without having to devote their life to Christ. But you can still find nuns working in hospitals, prisons, schools, shelters. They can be lawyers, political activists, and scientists. And as of now, as decreed by the current Pope Francis, they're not allowed to marry, and they're also not allowed to use social media or smartphones or own property or have sex. So... That's why we started a podcast. Because the alternative was joining a cloister. Yeah, we were we were rejected from the cloister. <laughs> they were like, oh, you two? No, thank you. But I think like there's this conception of, you know, like these nuns being so devout and like giving up all the earthly pleasures to serve Christ when it's like, yo, there were times where there were zero options for women. And if you wanted a roof over your head without sucking dick in the alley every day bride of christ me up yeah and if you wanted to like suck dick in the alley every so often you're also kind of shit out of luck because like you're basically watching grandia go by through Mm -hmm. like a fucking cage in the basement like it's hard it's not hard in so many ways um but I thought the repression and the narrative of the nuns was so fucking palpable. I mean, Vanessa Redgrave is truly one of the greatest actors of most generations. And the kind of comic essence and the like darkness and the sympathy that she imbues Sister Jean with is so transcendent. Yeah. Like it's I just like the rest of the like film. Her. There is no one thing to blame for no. why she is what she is. She feels one thing so intensely and she says the wrong thing to the wrong person and it all goes way too fucking far. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot and you see this, you see this fear of how far it's gone and how far it will go with, you know, the scene where she is given the femur mm-hmm. of Grandier, this burnt fucking femur. And it's, you know, within the version on Criterion and the kind of general accepted version, she's just kind of given it and the scene ends. Yet in the uncut version, she kind of like starts to almost belate the femur, and mm-hmm. then kind of starts to maybe use it for another purpose and another region mm-hmm. of her body. Yeah. Okay, so as I was just saying with regard to nuns, you know, different popes with different agendas, things change. This was never more true for the Catholic faith than in the Reformation, which is where our story is set. Now, the term Reformation implies that it's when things changed for the better, But that's not entirely accurate. Every religion has undergone calls for reform in every era. And the term Protestant, like it sounds like I protest against this. It it was initially a purely political term, sects of Christianity that sought to reform aspects of the church. The only differences between the Protestant sects that emerged out of Christianity during this time was concerned with 
religious authority? Like, did you follow the teachings of the Bible or the Pope or the king or which king or what have you? Like, for example, Henry VIII brought about the English Reformation because he wanted to marry and murder multiple women. And the only thing standing in his way was the Pope. That's my understanding of the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism is that Catholics follow like the church, the clergy, etc. Whereas Protestants kind of follow the Bible and the ideals of the Bible. And I say that as the daughter of a British Catholic. Okay. Catholics... Follow the Vatican. Yes. Christians follow the Bible and Protestants are all over in between. So Protestants are the sluts of religion. Totally. They're the grandes of religion. I love that. Perfect. So this was really a time where, as I said before, Grandier's reformist views were kind of being like, okay, okay, let's shake it up. Why shouldn't priests have sex with whoever they want, especially if they're as fucking hot as Grandier. He had a lot going for him in terms of he was a very compelling speaker. He was very persuasive and he was very charismatic. The amount of sex you would have had with Grandier. Uh, It's sinful. It's sinful. It's shocking. I love how Huxley's book describes Grandier exactly like Oliver Reed, right down to the waxy mustache. There's a great quote in The Devils of Ludon, which is uh, something like, Grandier was your average sensual man. (laughs) Which I think is perfect because we don't often think of men as sensual. How did you resist the urge to not say sensual? It was hard. I kind (laughs) of choked on it a bit. But I think like We don't often afford men the opportunity to be sensual. No, no. And like, again, I'm going to talk about this in a bit. Please keep going. But like, we're going to talk about eroticism, but he can get it. He can get it. There is something (laughs) extremely sexy about a guy who just gives a serious fuck about something. (gasps) It's so fucking hot. And I hate to say that the bar is that low, but just seeing someone so passionate, when you look at Grandier's speak and then you look at a modern politician delivering a spiel, you know, like even Jon Stewart's sexiness comes from his passion. Like fucking fight those doctors with an alligator and then do me on said alligator. Wow. That's a very Ken Russell-esque picture. Oh my God. Thank you. (laughs) Now, Russell is... Quoted, he went on record as saying that he was a devout Catholic himself and very secure in his faith and that he considers the devils to be his one political film. And I think that really struck with me. And I think the reason that this film is so uh, banished and buried is because people who are going to point to blasphemy and people who aren't going to be able to accept that this is a criticism of a religious institution that was splintering centuries ago are deeply insecure with their faith and are like so insecure with their faith that they're like, no, I I have no theology to back on. I have no theological reasons for behaving the way I do. I do because God said so and God would not like this film. And it's ick. And I think that's part of the reason why I just love that this film exists. Yeah. It's just a big F you. Yeah. Just so many things to just say like, Let people fucking live. And let them be Catholic if they want to be Catholic. Let them be good if they want to be good. 
but don't couch it in this insecure flimsiness that can be shattered asunder by a film about a political figure. Oh my God. Like, honestly, like the toxic rhetoric that just follows religion and racism and xenophobia and everything else, it's like, it's mind boggling. But it's it's beyond mind-boggling because so many people in our world are facing this now. Mm-hmm. And it's so fucking upsetting. Speaking of fucking upsetting, let's talk about sex education in the 1970s in Britain. Oh, okay. So I, through my research, became aware of another very controversial British film released in 1971. And... So we will link to articles about it in the show notes. I cannot actually find a video copy of this film. I'm not sure I want to see this film, but it is um, a film called Growing Up by Dr. Martin Cole, and it is the first non-pornographic film to show intercourse and scenes of masturbation. It caused a national debate about whether it should be shown to its intended audience, which was essentially high school students. Okay. So it wasn't like in the cinemas. It was meant to be a sex ed. It was a sex ed thing. Yeah. Um, The 70s was a time of change, and it was a response to a growing curiosity around sexuality, the culture that was evolving at the time, and of course, as we've already mentioned, the introduction of the contraceptive pill. Prior to this, sex education had been uh, wary of premarital sex and was very clinical. The goal of this film growing up was to destigmatize sex. So to quote Dr. Cole from this film, by knowing more about yourselves, it is hope that you can enjoy making love. I don't know about you, Andrea. I've never called it making love. I specifically remember seeing reference to the term in like an 80s rom-com and asking my mom, what's making love? And she said, hugging and kissing. Yep. That's what it is. Yep. No, And that's not what I'm interested in doing. I need to see this film. Okay. So yeah, beyond that, it shows like intercourse. It shows masturbation. Apparently it also shows um, genitalia at different stages of life. So you can see it age. Oh, so, you know, I, I have conflicted feelings of that. But if you have a copy, if you can find I was Googling around forever for this. I couldn't find it. If you can find it, let us know. Info at facultyofhorror.com. Um, essentially, it wanted to let people know that sex could be for pleasure. <gasps> I know. Reformation again. I know. It's all very shocking. You're keeping it together. Good on you. Um, But it just kind of led to this notion of like, what are we doing with ourselves, with our bodies, if we're not producing something? And this is a conversation I feel like I'm having more and more is like, what if I'm not producing? Well, then hopefully you're enjoying your life. Mm -hmm. How do you enjoy your life? It can be through spending time with friends, family, fucking for the sake of fucking. Like it can be a multitude of things. And those things are all super valid and super fucking great. Now, I went back to a text that I really like, and it's by a writer who is used to be super left wing. Now he's gone really right wing. That's what happens sometimes. You go too far over one edge, you just snap back to the other end. Listen, I mean, wait for us to do that. But could you imagine? I stop this podcast right here and now. (laughs) You say that until we talk about taxes again. 
Um, oh, you're right. I fucking hate taxes. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. I'm becoming my dad. Okay. So this is from the book Notes on the Death of Culture, Essays on Spectacle and Society. Uh, and it's by the Peruvian writer Mario Vargas Llosa. And it's from 2015. And uh, there is an excerpt of the essay Ars Erotica that was in Harper's. And so we'll link to that excerpt in the show notes, which is what I'm going to quote from. Because the idea of someone just fucking for pleasure is not a new concept, but it remains a very controversial one. Mm. I think people still want to like have this idea of like procreation and procreation is great. It's beautiful. Fuck yeah. Go do it if you want to. But the idea of just fucking for pleasure is still something, again, when we talk about public versus private, it remains in the private. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it's hard to talk about, I find. Um, so the overall argument of the book is that the West's obsession, not mine, the global West's. Not obsession, a West, <laughs> the West. The West's obsession with media, spectacle, and entertainment Um, has, as the Guardian review of this book claimed, dulled the mind and turned politicians into clowns. And so within this, Yosa is talking about this government workshop video for teens about masturbation, that you can masturbate, that it's fun, that it's cool, you can get yourself off, you're not getting anyone else pregnant, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so he wrote this essay kind of as like, yes, it destigmatizes it, but it also complicates it in a few new ways. So to quote Yosa, I acknowledge the good intentions behind the program, and I concede that campaigns of this sort might well lead to a reduction in unwanted pregnancies. My criticism is of a sensual nature. Sensual. Sensual nature. Instead of liberating children from the superstitions, lies, and prejudices that have traditionally surrounded sex, might these masturbation workshops trivialize the act even more than it has already been trivialized in today's society. Might they continue the process of turning sex into an exercise without mystery, disassociating it from feeling and passion, and thus depriving future generations of a source of pleasure that has long nurtured human imagination and creativity? Masturbation does not have to be taught. It can be discovered in private. It is one of the activities that compose our private lives. It helps boys and girls break out of their family environments, making them individual and revealing to them the secret world of desire. (laughs) To destroy the private rituals and to put an end to discretion and shame, which have accompanied sex since the beginning of civilization, is to deprive sex of the dimension it took on when culture turned it into a work of art. The disappearance of the idea of form in sexual matters, like its disappearance from art and literature, is a kind of regression. It reduces sex to something purely instinctive and animalistic. Masturbation classes in schools might do away with stupid prejudices, but they are also another stab at the heart of eroticism, perhaps a fatal one. And who would benefit from eroticism's final death? Not the libertarians and the libertines but the Puritans and the church. You've got a lot of faces going on there. Yeah, I think that's a lot of horse shit. Interesting. Talk more about that. Well, it just, it's almost arguing that sexual repression is what makes it naughty and that's what makes it fun. Well, and and to me, when I read that, what I see is the, the more we homogenize a sexual experience. Like if I was to have watched a video Uh of what it was to masturbate before I had ever masturbated, it would have been like, 
oh, I guess that's how I do it. I'm, I'm a very like studious person. I like, again, it, it's issues I'm talking about in therapy, but if you like, were given a diagram, you'd follow the I diagram, follow the fucking diagram. And I feel like, yes. And I, I like that Yosa, you know, talks about like, this is good for these reasons, but what do we lose when we give up this kind of experience and this space for exploration, for discovery? And that discovery is different for everyone. Well, yeah, I, I don't see how, how increased information and being informed on how our bodies work will. I think we're always going to find a way to discover. We're always going to find some new taboo. We're always going to find some kink to make it naughty if that's what we're into. Or if we want a diagram and go buy the book and that's what we're into, that's fine, too. Who's going by the book? I don't know. You were saying that you might like to go buy a book. It's I don't know. Like, look, even something like eating. The mysteries of eating. Oh. If you look back at like medieval texts about like what happens in our digestive system and they didn't understand and there was mystery. Like, did, did we ruin that by like <laughs> mapping out the digestive system? But I think like sex and pleasure and the pleasure we derive from sex is so personal. Yeah. And it's so different each person that, you know, if we say like, this is the way to do this thing, mm-hmm. then we lose out in the opportunities to learn more about ourselves. Oh, yeah. And I think, yes, I would definitely argue against the uh, homogenization of heterosexual porn, mm-hmm. like that, that that taught a generation that this was how to have heterosexual sex. And it was so focused on male pleasure and it was problematic and this and this and that. Definitely, I would argue against that. Well, but is that what they're saying? I think it's a it's a larger conversation of what do we give up when we basically take something that can be fun and kinky and weird and, you know, make it mainstream. Yeah. And I think this is where I love to introduce, as we've already talked about before on this podcast, but into this episode, the idea of the spectacle. Aha. I thought you were going to say simulacrum and I was going to run out the door. (laughs) (laughs) Run out the door, off the roof. No, 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 no. God, no. No Baudrillard today. No Baudrillard. We couldn't handle it. But we're going to talk about another guy, Guy Debord, and his theory, his treaties, his book, The Society of the Spectacle. So for Debord, uh, he was writing in the 20th century, and spectacle is mass media and images in modern parlance. But in 1634, spectacle was what happened in local public spaces. Um, what happens in these spaces is the sanctified and appropriate behavior and reception that was okayed by the upper classes. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that in the theatrical reception throughout this film. Now, when something outside of this controlled powers happens, and the main example I could think of in like recency bias was Will Smith slapping Chris oh, okay. Rock mm-hmm. at the Oscars, mm-hmm. which like, I, listen, I listen to a lot of mainstream film podcasts because I'm a fucking sadomasochist, but the amount of hand-wringing, the amount of like, the Oscars is over, who's responsible, who's going to get punished for this, mm-hmm. was crazy over the top. And again, I, I don't side on Will Smith or, or not on him his side, but like... It's a really strange moment, and a mm-hmm. lot of people handled it really poorly. But again, it was outside of our code of conduct. That's right. The elites, like this is supposed to be the highest level of conduct. Everybody's dressed to the nines. Everybody's on their best, best, best behavior. And Will Smith would go on, like, 
half an hour later to win the award of his career. Yes. But also end his career on the same night. It was, it was wild. It was a wild thing to happen. And the discourse after it was wild as, uh, as regards who gets to talk about it, who should talk about it, who is missing some kind of nuance. That was quite a moment. Like I remember watching that live. Really? And I was on a text chain as I usually am on Oscar night with um, my friend Jenny. And we were just like, wait, what the fuck happened? Was this a skit? Was this a joke? It didn't work. What happened? What happened? And then when Twitter was still a thing at that time, um, it was like Twitter just blew up. Yeah. And it was like, no one knew what the fuck was happening and the fallout was anyway. So to go back to the devils, uh, but again, those, those sanctified spaces, what we approve of, but what steps outside of it. So for Debord in this society of the spectacle, media tells us what to think and how to feel. So it is very, very controlled. Now, the collision of Grandier standing up to Richelieu and combined with Sister Jean's jealous rage, which stems from that kind of purely like reptilian brain almost culminates in a disastrous exorcism and this gives Richelieu and his goons a means to make example of Grandier Mm -hmm. and I think it's also really fucking important to note that after Grandier's death in real life IRL the nuns were trotted out twice a day for years following Grandier's execution uh, where Father Mignon performed a quote-unquote exorcism on them for the tourists that came by. The only day they didn't do it was on Sundays. But every other day, twice a day, 17th century France, they were perpetually reenacting their trauma, their everything else fucked up that happened to them. And it was like they touched this cusp of something different something weird, something new. And I think Ken Russell's film really goes on to explore the kind of eroticism of the exorcism. Mm -hmm. It's a very tawdry, lengthy scene. It's very taboo. It's very boundary breaking in so many ways. But it also just is like, what are these people being asked to do? Mm -hmm. And what are they for, what are they against? What is the kind of hive mind? What is not? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we have this kind of moment of like pure chaos. Yeah. So if um, Yosa was talking about, you know, I'm worried about the hegemony of eroticism and of masturbation and of everything else, then we have this chaotic entity of it. Mm -hmm. So what happens when we repress one thing and not the other, and we don't allow people to fully express and explore themselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the other thing with the nuns is like, you've got these women who are so ignored in society, and now all eyes are on them. And imagine having this opportunity and having nothing to say. That is so fucking palpable throughout yeah. the film. Russell constantly like uses the camera to cut back to Sister Jean, where it's like she kind of panics for a moment and then it carries on. Mm-hmm. And she panics and it carries on and then it just keeps going. And it's the way that like lies and intentions get away from you. Mm-hmm. And that can be really fucking scary. And I just really appreciated the the fact that they, like it was kind of a long 
line of broken telephone mm. that led to Grandier being indicted the way it did. And again, the easy way out for this film would have been hysterical nuns or hysterical bitches because bitches betray and they sentence this innocent man. But it didn't do that. No, I, I can't. No, it's it was a very complicated, very human story. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, we are fallible, fucked up entities. Yeah. And I think the film actually kind of celebrates that. Yeah. It says that's actually a beautiful thing. And when we tamp that out, look at how much we lose. Mm -hmm. Or or at the very least, it's a real thing. And it's a devil that we have to confront. And it's not something that can be, you know, uh, douched out of us with boiling water. Exactly. And, and so there is a really great quote from Ken Russell in Richard Krauss's book that I'd love to share. Please. It's much shorter than my other one. Um, we know from history that the state usually survives while the individual loses out in these cases. But I wanted to examine what lasting impact the individual still has, even when he loses. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting remark, because you know what we say about history being written by the winners. This is a time where there are surviving records and we can piece together a narrative, but I've got to believe that there are scriptures out there that tell this story a different way. I mean, we're telling this story a different way. Mm-hmm. Criterion put this out and I've seen so much more discourse about the devils in the last like few weeks and that's been really exciting. And it's, you know, there's something like palpable when we are being told through so many institutions in our lives that... These things are real. These things are, you know, forever. These things are going to happen. You have to fall in line with them. And a film like The Devils tells us, you know what? You can always push against them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can always fight and you can always try. And it's better to try than to fall in line. Yeah. That's what I take away from it. Yeah. Now, I have a whole spiel on structural functionalism, but I don't know if I care just because that wraps up so nicely. No. Structural functionism. I love it it when you talk to me, sociology esque. Okay. So before we wrap up this conversation, and you know, I I love that you appreciate this film as much as I do, but Uh, sorry, no one appreciates this film as much as you do. You think? I'd be hard pressed between your like lapsed Catholicism to your like you would fuck the corpse of Oliver Reed. Now I feel like I need a devil's tattoo. What should I get? (gasps) I, I think you need, like, Sister Jean on, like, the, the torso grandier. Oh, my God. If my neck weren't already so fucked, that'd be such a great Halloween costume. I literally think you and Dustin could do it. Oh, he could be grandier. Oh, my God. He's got it. Like, he's almost there. Yes, he's halfway there. He's got that bulldoggy Oliver Reed energy. No. Now I see you were with him with, for a decade plus. Gross. <laughs> we're ruining something or making it better. I, I'm, I'm not sure sociology um this film like i said tickles me on so many levels and i love like any material that brings me back to like original sociology 101 i'm like yes this is what made me fall in love with the universe this is what made me interested in what's happening around me and i think i've talked about the sociologist emil durkheim on the podcast before he's one of the biggest theorists of the discipline alongside weber marx and engels He helped define and establish the field from psychology and philosophy and all that other shit. And his biggest contribution to the discipline was the overall idea of structural functionalism, 
which had two fundamental tenets. One, that society is more than the sum of its parts. When human beings come together, society has a structure of its own. Like it develops a solidarity and a common consciousness. And like, it's something that we can feel. For example, when you're at a concert and you get swept up in the social effervescence, it's it's something, I don't know, I haven't been to a witch trial and burning, but it's, it's what I imagine these nuns were going through when they were having their inquisition. Or when I have $150 worth of Depeche Mode merch, for example. And the second fundamental tenant, and this is a spicy one, is the one that too much freedom is bad for society. We need rules and norms to know how to behave with one another. And when those norms are unclear or they change too fast, there's a sense of societal discomfort. And he called that anomy. And he studied that with regard to suicide rates throughout European history. And I always thought that this was fascinating. He's not saying that, like, if the rules are too rigid, if the rules are too stupid, if the rules come from on high and aren't democratic. No, he's saying that the problem is when the rules are unclear or when they change too fast. So that's not to say that rules shouldn't change. They should. They absolutely should. But when they're unclear and they don't apply to everyone, that's when society crumbles. And he further argues that the structures that make society make sense are the institutions like family, like religion, like education and workplaces. In societies where the rules are clear, they all function together like a cell. And when one of them crumbles, it affects all of them. And so in The Devils, we've got the monarchy and the church trying to collaborate for absolute power. But the monarchy is weak, the church is splintering, and the so-called scientific community is fumbling with the plague on top of that. And so there is no single societal pillar for this town to lean upon. And I actually feel like of all the classical sociologists, you know, Marx is like, the the working class is going to rise up and it's like, dude, (laughs) it's 2024. Still fucking waiting. It's (laughs) not going to happen. I feel like Durkheim's theory is the one that, to me, still sort of rings true insofar as the rules are very unclear right now. Yeah. They're very unclear. There is too much information. There is not even centralized authority. I even think of structural functionalism when I think about Twitter. Like even mm-hmm. you, just you bringing up Twitter um, with the way Vanderpump Rules is going, I miss Twitter. I was like, there is no authoritative space where I can expect everyone to be talking about this. And, and that it doesn't even have to do with rules. That just has to do with information. Well, and I think it's so telling in The Devils that everything kind of falls apart when Grandier leaves. When he is actively going to, um, you know, fight for the rights of Loudon to Louis XIII. He's like gone. He's like leaving his hot young wife. He's like doing his thing. And it's like everything descends into chaos. And the second he arrives back, it's like... He fucking lays down the law, but he's taken into custody and Mm -hmm. it's, it's done. It's done. It's done. His trial is a complete sham. And it's fascinating that even when Louis comes and like reveals all that to be bullshit, I've got this magic box. Okay. Father Bari. (gasps) Fucking blonde John Lennon. Kind of hot. Oh. Oh, come on. No. No. Am I just horny for this entire movie? You're horny for this entire film. I am horny for guys who give a fuck, and apparently it doesn't matter what they give a fuck about. Apparently not. Ew. (laughs) Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. 
You don't think he's sexy in the slightest? No. Oh, dang. No, I get the Oliver Reed. I uh-huh. get Vanessa Redgrave. Uh-huh. I get Gemma Jones. Um, Barre can go fuck himself. Or me. Or, or Andrea. No, I spread, <laughs> share the wealth. My friends, no, I, I think, again, we, we live in this repressed society. So when people are impassioned and excited and sexy and good at what they do, and Bari is good at what he does. Yes. He fucking sells that show of the nuns, of this and that, everything else that's happening. He makes it all real. And it's very, like, it's tantalizing. Maybe it's the fact that I feel like he really believes it. It's like the same with Grandier, where mm. like I don't think he's like, I hate women, and so I want to persecute these nuns. Yeah. I think he is actually terrified of the devil and terrified and terrified and terrified. And uh, yeah, maybe that's it. Hey, learn something new about ourselves every time we do a podcast. I'm just making excuses at this point. But to wrap up our discussion, look, like I could talk about this film oh. forever. There are so many layers. There are so many levels, but I just love it. And to love a film that is so hidden from society as it is, like it is my personal mission to get this out in front of as many people as possible. It can be cut. It can be edited. I don't give a shit because it is so good even in that form. Like, could you imagine the fucking lineup of people who would be happy and, like, willing to do, like, essays, commentaries, uh, video essays, special features on this film? Like, that would be, like, Warner Brothers, lighten your load, my friend. It just doesn't make sense to me because I can think of so many films that I consider deeply misogynist, harmful to society. Like, if we're going to get our, if we're going to clutch some pearls... It's not going to be over this historical fucking fiction. God. No. It's a sexy film. It's an upsetting film. It's a beautiful film. But it's a it's, really good film. It, it comes in under two hours. Yeah. But it could be four and I'd still love it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm just, I'm so fucking pleased because it was on Shutter for a little bit. We missed our window with that. Uh, for a variety of reasons, just what was on there. So I'm glad it's on Criterion. I'm glad more people are having the chance to check it out. And if you haven't checked it out already, dear God, I hope you've seen it by now because we talked about it a whole lot. And this probably wouldn't have made sense. Can you spoil a historical fiction event? Listen, I used to say no, but the emails we get, Andrea. You're right. Well, you're right. Anyway, this episode was a gift to me, I feel, and I thank you for that, Alex. And now, now, as we get into next episode, those of you who have listened to our January episode will recall that we played a little game and I lost. And so Alex gets to choose the subject for the next episode. And bless her heart, earlier this week, she was like, do you want me to tell you? I'll give you the right to veto. But no, I said. Emil Durkheim, I said. <laughs> the rules are the rules, Alexandra West, I said. And I lost the game, and I will study what you have for me to study. So, I will say, I went back and forth on a few films, but this was a film that kept coming to the top for me. And I want to think this is actually also a gift to you, Andrea. Okay. I think. I'm not sure. 
I feel like we've talked about this film in passing, and I have been doing a rewatch of this director's filmography, and I was coming up to this film, and I was so fucking excited, and I was like, this should be a fucking episode. And it's a book series that I'm pretty sure you've indulged in and enjoyed. So we're going to go to America. Uh We're going to go to the 80s. So for our next episode, we're going to do Michael Mann's Manhunter. Oh, all right. Good choice. Thanks, baby. Did you deliberately go easy on, like, look. No, 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 no. I feel like you were insinuating that, oh, I'm going to choose something that's going to suck for you. No, I guess not doesn't love Manhunter? It's wonderful. I know. It's just, it's one of those ones that I came up and I was like writing out all the films I would want to talk about. Yeah. But everything I wrote out, I was like, oh, this is natural for us to get to. Totally. Manhunter felt like we've already done Silence of the Lambs in our first year. Uh-huh. Discourse around that has changed a lot, and I've been watching a lot of Michael Mann films in the last year and a half, and I was like, oh, I've just been waiting for Manhunter. Yeah. I've been fucking waiting for it, and I remember, if I'm correct, you really enjoying those Thomas Harris novels. Oh, yeah. I haven't read them, so I just ordered uh, Red Dragon. Okay. So it's coming to me, and I want to check it out, and I just thought, like... Because in my memory, and the few times I've seen Manhunter, which has been, it's been a few years. Me too. Um, Brian Cox is the most terrifying iteration of Hannibal Lecter in my mind. The most terrifying? Yeah. So you're not going to say the best, but the most terrifying. It might be the best. Oh, she. I'm a big, I'm a big Brian Cox fan. What can I say? I know. Well, and you know, that franchise went so off the rails that it's hard to. Yeah. Yeah. So I just felt like, you know what? This feels like weird and strange and just you know what i want to fucking talk about it nice great choice i'm excited too yeah it's gonna be great so you have your homework for march my friends manhunter march manhunter michael mann march oh i love that (laughs) we are going to do some research we are going to come up with some stuff to talk about and you've got a movie to watch and in the meantime until the next time you douche with boiling hot water Office hours are closed.
Shit on me. Why don't you just deal with it? Cause I'm not sorry. 